Welcome to Make No Bones. I'm Toby Altman. And I'm Emily Barton Altman. Make No Bones is a podcast about poetry and the creative life. Each episode, we ask a poet to read a poem and talk about it. They tell us how they wrote it and explain how it reflects the broader priorities of their work. This week's episode features Camden Hilliard. Uh, hi, I'm Camden Hilliard. I prefer Cam. Um, my pronouns are they, them, there. Camden Hilliard was born in California and grew up in Hawaii. They graduated from the University of Hawaii at Manoa with a BA in American Studies and are a graduate fellow at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Camden has received support from Callaloo, Sarah Lawrence College, the UCross Foundation, and the Davidson Institute. Camden prefers Cam and published three chapbooks, Distress Tolerance, Perceived Distance from Impact, and Hence Force, a travel poetic, forthcoming from Omnidon. Find their writing in the Black Warrior Review, West Branch, American Cordata, Lambda Literary Review, and other sunspots. If they did something else, it too would be pro-human. We talked debt, wealth, and skipping checks with Cam, and they read us their poem, This is the bartender from Freddy's. If you don't come back to settle your check, I'm calling the cops. I was a really bad student in middle school. I went to a a prep school in Hawaii, and I had this teacher who was like, so are you, like, rude or dumb, basically? (laughs) He was like, you seem really resistant to everything. Is that because, like, you can't do it or because, like, you refuse? And I was just insulted, you know? my narcissistic 14-year-old self. So I was like, I'm going to write the best poems ever and didn't for a number of years. Um, But I kind of developed an obsession for it. Um, That was like, that English teacher was like the first adult I had in my life that um, felt like invested in my well-being in a totally organic way. Um, So I kind of connect my creative practice to like that emotion, to feeling very looked at and very cared for. My parents both grew up all over the country. My mom was born in Europe, um, lived in Mississippi, Chicago, all over the place. My dad was like, my poor father, was like a black cowboy. Um, (laughs) And I think their relationship to language really influenced me growing up. Like, they don't sound like they're from anywhere necessarily. They sound a bit anonymous. Um, And then being a military brat myself and moving around a lot, I always kind of felt, unlanded or unconnected to a lot of things. I'm really kinetic as a person. Like that tends to be my um, preferred method of like learning and interacting with uh, new ideas. So when I think about writing a poem, it's, uh, it's not really writing for me as much as it's like starting with a very general shape of something and then trying to figure out if that shape is what I meant and then going back at the shape again um, and eventually arriving somewhere that feels both legible and earnest. Um, I'm really interested in white space and kind of visual play on the page as well. Um, I think a lot about sheet music and the ways in which these kind of typographical objects can produce very fluid, very mutable um, performative expressions. The other thing I think about when I draft is 
does this poem look like I would like it to sound? Or does this poem look like it sounds even? Um, and usually that pushes me down an avenue of using uh, non-standard visual cues, probably, um, to communicate certain movements in the poem, uh, certain flows of energy. In the last few months, I've been playing a lot more with, um, with white space and text blocks and thinking about suspension and thinking about connection between ideas. Um, yeah, but even last night when I was drafting, that process really just turned into me trying to write the word shiny in as many ways as I could think of. So like phonetically, visually, at a certain point, I was like about to buy glitter on Amazon and I was like, stop, <laughs> like we've gone too far. But um, I'm interested in what happens if you really just beat the joke up until there's like nothing left. Um, and I think when you're at the point of nothing left, that's when some really exciting things can start to happen. So I guess that's how I think about my process of walking into what might be a poem. This poem is, it was written specifically for a chapbook manuscript. Um, you know, you're sequencing and you're like, wow, I need this one poem that does like X and Z that's approximately this length. Of course that failed. <laughs> so what I got instead is I was at AWP actually in, I guess this was DC, yeah. And I had, uh, met a friend in the evening to say that and they thought it'd be fun to like skip checks at bars and i was mortified i was like clutching my pearls worried about the police state dropping down from the ceiling so like i'm having all these feelings and i kind of express them to him and he like laughs about it you know um and I guess that's kind of what started motivating me to write this poem like that interaction like clearly seeing my anxiety just kind of get cut at the knees um, in such a casual way was really a strange experience for me. And I started to think about what would be like the internal review process of someone ch like skipping on a check, like what would uh, the Bureau of Information up in the sky have to say or what would they have to do to process this event? Um, and that's really how I started developing the voice for this poem. It might be helpful to know. I've always had this like very passive, insistent fear about like people that dip on checks. It's always seemed like a very sitcom activity that you do. Like people do it, but it's always scared me. You know, it's like, but then you die because someone finds out. So this is kind of um, an anxiety poem. So the voice that speaks it is really, I don't know, a coalition of like the bartender that saw you at the bar, the state, your mother. A CCTV cam. So a lot of my poems have these kind of mutable um, authority figures in them and this is a pretty strong example of one that like actually voices and mo motivates the poem. So I think one of the things that's tricky for me at least about disciplinary spaces or authoritative spaces is um, a lack of transparency. 
And I think through a kind of um, assemblage or pastiche of these different kinds of disciplinary voices, you can start to tease out the ways in which they are um, connected, contradictory, invested in something that's not actually being discussed. Um, so how do mechanisms of control articulate something that they refuse to articulate, I guess, is something I'm very interested in. And I was working with uh, this poem on. Oh, this is something else I was thinking about but didn't mention. I was thinking about the process or the, uh, the practice of payday loans. Payday loans as an interesting form of attack on, on specific populations because they attract people that are like doing the thing, you know, they, they, they have jobs, but they're attacking them in a way that addresses a form of financial insecurity, like a, a money flow kind of thing. Um, and I guess I'm interested in how participation in markets or how general ideas of liberal freedom are actually more like invitations to be systemically abused. Um, what happens when one finally takes on the role of citizen, whether that's cultural or market citizen, um, and how does that role become like literally a site of a site of potential violence? So, in this poem, I think I think the questions about the wallet, like what what the institutional voice feels it is owed, it is not owed money. Like that's not what the institutional voice is owed. It's owed a, a certain kind of gratitude, you know? And I think that's one of the debts the poem struggles with. It's like, you should be happy to be here. You you are free and you know, you're, you're in bars, there's a cute boy nearby, like you should be smiling. Um, and because the poem isn't smiling in the preferred way, I think it's like a failure, and I think part of this poem is a is a form of collection on on the subjects of it. It's it's kind of demanding a certain affective responses. It's not necessarily about money in that sense. Wealth is a much more accurate descriptor for my interest in in things and capital than money. You know, it's not really about having money in your wallet. It's about having the kind of wallet that makes people hit on you at parties is what I'm like really finding myself baffled by these days. Um, the sense that like not having the right kind of wealth kind of casts you out of, of certain spaces of desire or legibility. I'm also really interested in fracture with this poem, like the appearance and disappearance of figures. I think that also factors into my interest in wealth. Um, my parents worked really hard, but they were both first generation out of poverty. Um, so like wealth as a concept has always been kind of elusive to me because it's not necessarily money. As a kid, uh, <laughs> My mom used to make fun of my dad because, like, she'd send him to the grocery, right? And he'd come back with, like, filet mignon steaks, like, really expensive steaks, and then, like, plastic cheese. And she's just like, I didn't really get why that was funny as a kid. And I don't think it's funny now. I think it's, like, a very specific kind of sadness and a kind of um, acculturation. But, like, those kinds of interactions to me, I think, really get at the underpinnings of 
of wealth and debt, and I think they're embarrassment and shame. That's part of the, the trick with both of these texts. It is, it is shameful to fail. It is, um, it's a way to cast one out of what we consider like morally responsible people that we live nearby. I just, I don't know, it hurts my feelings a little, so. Uh, this poem is called, This is the bartender from Freddy's. If you don't come back to settle your check, I'm calling the cops. Uh, hi, Nick's Race America. You have an account to settle. Start up that labor shop. Don't shimmy. Don't think less about yourself in the next want. Unnozzled. Even the ditches would sell for the right of unmolested assembly. Look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? I got an outbox in lieu of a body. Tapas, poo-poos, and affertifs for the same purposeful doing. But you thought to leave unchecked. Look, we all talk. We all know you owed us plastoral night a wallet winged. A wallet emptied, a wallet wide with knowing, a wallet with doors and windows, a slim fit feeling like pig's blood down the money clit, and unfortunately, our payment programs can't even with your hard cash. We don't self-identify as, like, super superior, but are watchful sounds. Selfish mostly. We delight American as an almanac of aphrodisphoric aphrodisiacs. These delicacies ain't a decision, and disruption of such articulates your racial future in memorandum. And of your alleged nigger wealth, or naps, even in the nice shit, it seems you wish to pack it all back into a nameless thing, really nude-colored to nothing in an honest presentism. What if we banish the astral bit, the tool, the info-holder tool, and really considered how hundun became wanton. What if being named is like the end of possibility? But oh, Cam, you know what one won't call themselves for what one will. Scrub themselves nameless. Risk for thrill. This episode of Make No Bones was produced and edited by Toby and Emily Altman in Iowa City. The music for this episode is by Toby Altman. If you like what we do, check out our website, makenobonespodcast.org, for all of our old episodes, or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And please consider giving us a rating on iTunes. It really helps get the word out. Join us next time for an interview with Jen Bourbon.